Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in chapter 23, verse 1, as we begin uh, each Parsha. We're back in the first year of the triennial cycle. So we are looking at the first third of each Parsha. In order to understand what the tradition does with where we are, we need to know what happens at the end of Parshat Vayera. So if you look at uh, chapter 22, the end of uh, the story, 2215. So 2215, an angel of God calls to Abraham a second time. What is happening here? He's being promised, right, descendants and uh, all of that grooviness. And what has happened just before that, right, is the uh, Malach calls to him at verse 11 and 12 to say, do not raise a hand against the boy. Which boy? Yitzchak. Yitzchak is on the altar. And the Malach calls twice to Avraham, Avraham, Avraham. Avraham answers. What are you supposed to answer when God or an angel calls? Hineni. Here I am. Hineni. And so uh, he's told not to hurt the boy. Uh, and then we have uh, the close of that business. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking for him coming back. Uh, 19. 19? 19. Thank you. So verse 19, if you look at 22, 19, right? He's promised all of this wonderful stuff. I'll bestow my blessing on you. Make your descendants numerous. Blah, 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 blah. 19. Vayashav Avraham El Na'arav. And Avraham returned El Na'arav to his youths. 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 Um, so Abraham returns to his, essentially his attendants, the people who are attending him. They are young <clears throat> men, young boys, uh, not young boys, but Narav, like a, a, a teenager, a 20 year old. So, huh? Servant lads. Okay, that works. He returns to his servant lads. What is interesting about this for the rabbis? Where's his wife? He didn't return to his, or his family. So it doesn't say he returned to his family. It says he returned to his servant lads, um, right? Uh, and they departed together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Where's Sarah? And where's Yitzhak? <laughs> Sarah's in Hebron. Sarah's in Hebron. And the big question is, where's Isaac? Sounds like a TV series. Sounds like a TV series. All right. So, so two, two big questions. What's going on with the family? 
And where the heck is Isaac? It just says that Abraham returned from that spot where all that stuff was going on, right? So there are many Midrashim, as you can imagine, many Midrashim that say Isaac was slaughtered. Really? Really. And uh, later, like, is returned from the dead, essentially, and comes back. Right? Just says that Abraham returned. Or that something happened, that he... He, he's he's not there. Doesn't it make sense? He just wouldn't want to go with his father after all that. So <laughs> there's a lot of uh, thought and conversation about why would Isaac want to accompany his father anywhere ever again <laughs> after he ties him to the wood and is raising the knife to. Uh, offer him as a sacrifice. So, um, lots of broken, broken family stuff happened last Parsha, leading directly into this week's Parsha. Um, you'll recall Ishmael was banished along with Hagar. We can read it the way we read it last time, which was that she is freed. Hagar is freed by Sarah. But in either case, Ishmael is separated from Avraham. Right, they're going to go live somewhere else. So he's now separated from Abraham. We don't hear Abraham and Ishmael talk again. Um, we don't hear Abraham and Yitzchak talk again. We didn't hear them talk when. Do, was- okay, we, we're missing that conversation, but they're together. We don't. They don't talk again in our text. We don't have Sarah speak again. We don't have God talking to these people again here. So a lot of a lot of rupture, a lot of broken stuff, a lot of um, family relationships coming apart. That um, makes sense. Hmm? That makes sense. Right. So it's a you know, it's a terrible terrible set of of circumstances, terrible some people might say terrible choices, right? On behalf of Abraham on behalf of, you know, and, and, you know, part of the conversation is where's, where's Sarah in the whole Akedah business? Did they have a conversation? Did she not see him get up in the morning? Was she what? You know, she's, she slept in that day? <laughs> the Midrashim perhaps touched on the fact that if Sarah has seen her son kill, uh, that's, you know, a mother has a real difficult <laughs> <laughs> Presumably. <laughs> presumably even a Jewish mother. <laughs> uh, right? So presumably if she knows what's happening, right, then... So the one, one Midrash says that's why she's in Hebron. Yeah. All right. So there's just a lot... There's a lot going on. We come right off of last week's parsha, right off the Akedah, right off the binding of Isaac into this week's parsha. The rabbis always want to tie the end of one parsha to another, the beginning of the next when they can. They want to know why is this parsha here and immediately after that, happens this. Remember Nadav and Avihu? They get zapped. They get consumed by fire. Very next thing is something talking about not serving in the tabernacle drunk. So the rabbis want to connect those, right? Oh, they got consumed because they served in the tabernacle having had alcohol, right? So 
The rabbis want to connect things when they can. Who set up the parshiot? That's not a Torah continuous. But they want to connect what happens next with what happened before. So even if we don't talk Parsha, look at, look at what's now, look at what just happened, they're going to want to connect those. And they do. We have a very large Midrashic tradition around this transition. The Akedah to Chaye Sarah. All right? we have a, and we're going to look at some of it today. We have a huge Midrashic tradition around this. Um, all right. And remember, Midrashim contradict each other often. Right? They are not consistent. Some midrashim say one thing, and Im- immediately the next midrash says something completely opposite. It is not a corpus that tries to harmonize with everybody else. the possibilities. It, it rather raises and explores lots of different uh, possibilities. All right. And then, of course, in good Jewish fashion, sometimes they argue about it <laughs> in the Talmud. All right. 23. One. Sarah's lifetime, the span of Sarah's life, came to 127 years. She died in Kiryat Arba, now Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham proceeded to mourn for Sarah and to bewail her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead and spoke to the Hittites, saying, I am a resident alien among you. Sell me a burial site among you that I may remove my dead for burial. And the Hittites replied to Avraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are the elect of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold his burial place from you for burying your dead. Thereupon Avraham bowed low to the people of the land, the Hittites, and he said to them, If it is your wish that I remove my dead for burial, you must agree to intercede for me with Ephron, son of Zohar, Let him sell me the cave of Machpelah that he owns, which is at the edge of his land. Let him sell it to me at the full price for a burial site in your midst. Go on. Ephron was present among the Hittites. So Ephron the Hittite answered Avraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all who entered the gate of this town, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Then Avraham bowed low before the people of the land and spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If only you would hear me out. Let me pay the price for the land. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron replied to Avraham, saying to him, My lord, do hear me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Go and bury your dead. Avraham accepted Ephron's terms. Avraham paid out to Ephron the money that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver at the going merchant's rate. Go on. Let's finish this out. Okay. So Ephron's land in Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees anywhere within the confines of that field, passed to Avraham as his possession in the presence of the Hittites of all who entered the gate of his town. And then Avraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, now Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Thus the field with its cave passed from the Hittites to Avraham as a burial site. Alright, so there's a lot of text devoted to this cave of Machpelah business. <clears throat> Usually Torah is a little more terse, <clears throat> right, than this. <clears throat> what do we get about Sarah? <coughs> Two lines. 
And then we get this huge story about the cave of Machpelah, right? So it's kind of like, what's going on here? Um, so this is the first purchase of land in the promised land by Avraham and his family, right? So this is the first piece of the promised land that our family, our Genesis family, will own. So in the ancient Near East, land was incredibly important. We've talked some about that. The attachment to land was very deep and, and was about family. And family, of course, was bigger than what we think of as family. It was the clan. So the, the tribal, the clan's attachment to that land was significant in the ancient world. To part with it is a big deal. To be willing to part with it is a huge deal. So this sounds like this lovely little interaction. Isn't this very, everybody's so polite? And isn't this just sweet that he says, bury your dead, right? All right, so, so he, so we're gonna go back to the death of Sarah in a second. So Avraham goes to the Hittites. What does that mean? Who does he go to? The Hittites. It's the head of the head Hittite, <laughs> <laughs> right? So we we don't know exactly what this means. A, of a random gathering of Hittites, uh, okay? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, possibly, Abraham goes to the place where deals are going to be made, where things like the city gate, where where legal transactions happen. And he's, he acknowledges that he is an alien, right? He's a ger in, in this situation. He says, ger betoshavanochi, right? I'm a resident alien here. Um, I need to remove my dead for burial. Sarah's died. He has to bury her, and he has to bury her quickly, right? In the ancient Near East, unpleasant things happen to a corpse, after a few days, right? Mm -hmm. So um, he needs to get this done now. So the Hittites reply to Avraham saying, like, clearly you are elect of God among us because Avraham does very well, right? He's clearly favored by some divine being, whatever it is. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. No one will withhold it from you. Bury wherever you like. Sounds like a very lovely offer, right? Does Abraham say, great, thank you? No. Nope. He bows low, right? The appropriate acknowledgement of his status as being beneath those who are, right, I don't want to use a later term citizen, but the people who belong there, the Hittites. Um, if it's your wish that I remove my dead for burial, you must agree to intercede for me with Ephron, son of Zohar. Let him sell me the cave of Machpelah that he owns at the edge of his land. So they say, please, take the whatever, whatever grave site you want. We have a beautiful one at Mount Sinai over here, <laughs> overlooking, right? We have Hollywood. We have, we have Hillside. We have a beautiful crypt there. Pick whatever you like. 
Why does Abraham not do that? Because he wanted to own the land. Why? To protect the Because if you don't own the land, then possibly you can't protect you can't protect the burial site. So you and you can't visit the grave site. You can't maintain it if at some point the gift is disacknowledged. So did he have a favor to ask though? No. <laughs> no. He paid. Straight Isn't up. Isn't there a sense that he's very noble in, that it's oh don't give it to me please I want to pay you for it? Is there a sense of is that? There a sense? Yeah. yeah, I mean the sense that he's being very noble? No. No. No, he's mean, trying no. to acquire what they don't want to sell him. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. They don't want to give him permanent uh-huh. ownership of anything. So he's being a crafty uh-huh. businessman, um, right? By saying, no, I need your help. I need you to talk to Ephron, son of Zohar, who owns that cave over there. Oh, yeah, I was going to do that. He's What's going on at the beginning is is a common courtesy. Oh no no you no you just take it, and he knows that. Um, so the I mean that goes on in, in all the a lot of business dealings there. Beware of the just take it. So he's he wise. This is no 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 no. I I really want to pay for this. I really I mean, you may have to say it three times. And not only do I want to pay for it, let him sell it to me at the full price. So there are no questions. No questions that I haggled. Mm -hmm. I had him over a barrel. Mm -hmm. It was a bad deal for him. Here are those Jews, right? Mm -hmm. Jewing them down Mm -hmm. on the price, right? So he doesn't want any. I want want him to sell it to me at full market value. So there is no question. Laura? You may not want to go here right now, and that's fine. But I'm curious what, I mean, this is the first time that I'm hearing it about, um, thinking about the the contrast to, like, the the Native American uh, concept of land and ownership, which I understand to be, no one owns it, it's land. And so interesting that this is such an ancient understanding that we just, you know, this is where we come from, this is what we understand as being normative. Do you have any thoughts on like how did this how was it that this was the concept so long ago in that part of the world where it might not have been the concept in other parts of the world? Why not just bury your land? Yeah, I mean, we, it's a very old system in the ancient Near East of believing in land belonging to a people, belonging to a tribe, belonging to a clan, right? The, but, it, but it's, I think it looks a little more outright that than it is in fact, because lots of places in Torah, right, you own the land for those of you at home I'm doing air quotes you own the land but you you don't who does it really belong to okay so it is Native American related in that sense you can't own the land the land belongs to God hence we get Jubilee hence we get right every so many years it returns to the original original owner because 
you, you can't really ever own it. It belongs to God, and, and it, in that sense itself, it be, right? It doesn't belong to you. So to, to say that, that we, to say in Torah that someone owns it is really talking about the right to use it. It's the occupation of it. That you get to use its produce, you get to use its yield, right, as your wealth, essentially. Um, and, and very, very strong attachments to place. Like, we belong here, right? And that is very, very true among, in, in Duluth, Minnesota, they want to be called Indians, not Native Americans. Um, so, which took me forever to be able to say, like, you know, just the way I was raised was like, you don't do it. So, but it, for the Indians, it was very, very much the same idea of very rooted to place, Right and and a deep attachment to place, um, so that and they also had very clear understandings of boundaries. Let someone from another Indian tribe come onto your territory and and kill something and take it and eat it. Oh, that's that's war, right? Because that's our antelope. That our tribe has a relationship to the land that yields that antelope, and it's ours. You can't come poach. So in some sense maybe Abraham being in this new land needed some extra um, offering to, to make it to join in. Yes. Yes. He has to pay full market value because it's already distasteful. Mm-hmm. Right? That, uh, that, that this guy from over there, over yonder yeah. is going to is going to own or claim or have control of any part of our Hittite territory. Yeah, but it's not from the tribe, if you will, or from the Hittites. It's from an individual. So an individual... A Hittite. It's, it is, but it's an individual... Who controls it for the clan. Ah, okay. The, the patriarch, of course. Abraham's going to control it for his tribe. For his clan. Yes, but it's... It, well, the way I just heard it, I haven't, is that he wanted to talk to an individual. Because one person has control of, uh, okay. of everything happening for that tribe. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that Hittites are a tribe. I don't, I don't want to misuse language. No, but but the, right? the patriarch had absolute control over all of the resources, all of the territory, all of the bodies of the clan. He can kill somebody, boom, dead, no question. So he's acting as the, the chief rather than as an individual. I own this plot. Correct. He's going to Ephron, who controls the sale of this part of Hittite territory. He knows that he's in control of this cave in Mamre. The same implication is that you know we get the first concept of private property here. This is going to be private property, and there ain't nothing for free. You know, so we know that. But if he's buying it from the Hittites, that means that they must have had the concept of a going price anyway. Of course. So private property must have existed. In of course. Absolutely. We have documents from all over the ancient Near East. Uh, sale of property. All over the ancient Near East at this time. And earlier. Um, and, so, and often, the price is 400 sh- shekels. <laughs> So it's a common 
It's a, it's a common price for a certain parcel of land, and it's expensive. It's a lot. Wouldn't this be made that much more complex because it's a, a site where you're going to bury somebody, and there's a whole set of taboos associated with how you bury, where you bury, how long you bury, when... It was pretty standard at this time. So it was secondary burial, right? So the cave would have been where the body rots, um, and then the bones would be collected and put in an ossuary and buried in the middle of the cave. So that's why you need a cave, because it's secondary burial. You didn't bury in the ground. You buried in a cave. The flesh deteriorate or whatever decomposes and then you collect the bones they're put in an ossuary uh, and that's generally put in the center of the floor some cultures just simply gather the bones together and take them outside and scan them yeah they collected them uh, we know because we found ossuaries but, but also you know Joseph's bones are carried from Egypt right he says I, when I die or when you get out of here whatever take, take my bones with you so it was clear that they were collected and Available to be and Jesus gotten. Was in a cave. Of course, of course, of course, because it's secondary burial. Absolutely. Well, and, and some people believe this is the origin of uh, the unveiling ceremony about 11 months later. Is that's about the time you would have gone to collect the bones and bury the bones. And so it's its, it's, its own, it's another ceremony associated with burial and so we have kind of this possible remnant of that in the unveiling 11 months so when the bones disappeared from the cave of Jesus the story (laughs) might be that someone came and buried them 100% 100% Mm -hmm. I saw two hands Um, I think we also need to look at uh, what burial sites or burial rituals uh, uh, are with the Hittites from what I know about Hittites they bury their death in their own living room, underneath the living room. It's in their houses, never outside. In the Bronze Age? In the Iron Age? Yeah. So what burying someone means to Hittites and what burying someone means to Abraham, in that case, in a cave, are two different things. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the Hittites have any uh, issue with him burying her in a cave because that's not their issue. He's not trying to adopt their culture. Do what you want. Yeah, do what you want. It's fine. I mean, we'll sell it. Oh. Right. How in heaven's name did you know about the Hittites? Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's a term. The Hittites from Indonesia. Yeah. I mean, totally. And this is happening in Canaan, right? So, so they controlled... There's a high probability the Hittites in Canaan are air over there. Not at this point. No, no, not according to this text. But earlier, the Hittites were in Hattusis in, in eastern Turkey. Exactly. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're not from Canaan. But they obviously control yeah. territory yeah. right where early Israel is. Yeah. Dana. So this cave is purchasing the land that God promised. Yes. It's like not being given to Abraham. Correct. He's going and purchasing. He's starting the whole thing, but he has, he's buying it. Yes. So it's Yes. He's acting in that sense. Correct. Is this the um, so I'm curious the land and maybe possibly the living rooms that the other Hittites were offering to him, they weren't caves? 
when, when they were saying, please, bury I, I don't know. wherever you want. I don't know. All of our land. I don't know. They're, they're saying, take what you want. You know, it's, it's all posturing. Yeah. Take what you want. Bury where you want. And it, I mean, it's all, it's all formulaic. Because he, right, he, right, you know, it's all kind of this, what you do to get to the deal. Right. Um, uh, But, but my notes tell me that he's not just talking about the cave. He's talking about this parcel of land that contains the cave. So Machpelah would have been kind of a, 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 you know. Yeah, like a hunk of land on which is the cave. And some scholars want to say the, the fact that he says it's at the edge of his field is a way to say it's not in the middle of the field. Nobody's going to have to walk through Abrahamic territory to get to somewhere else. It's over on the side by the fence. Right, so that you know, some scholars want to read in that he's saying it's it's a marginal piece. It's not going to be in anybody's way. So it's the first time he they own. He's been he's been hanging around, but own, correct. Bert? Is there significance in the fact that four hundred the price is forty times ten? As I think forty being the I don't know. We just know that we see it in other documents about purchasing land. So it seems to be a common a common does amount. Word, does the word Machpelah have any meaning? Not that I'm aware of. It is it is known and possibly um, my notes tell me Machpelah encompasses the entire field, not just the cave. The ancient versions and rabbinic traditions together with many medieval exegetes understood the word to be a descriptive term, meaning twofold. Two chambers, either side by side or one above the other. Because Avraham is buying this not just for Sarah, but as the family tomb, you know, the, the family Burial site. Um, according to the Genesis sources, not only Sarah but Abraham too was buried there, as were Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah. Why is Rachel not buried there? She dies on the side of the road, right on the way. She dies having Benjamin. Okay. All right. So we. Um, so today, Chevron. Right is a huge source of tension mm-hmm. and awfulness, but now you have a bit of an appreciation about why. Right, so this is for folks who are deeply attached to this story, mm-hmm. this story as being true historically. Those folks, you can imagine how they might feel about the cave of Machpelah, right, and whose hands that's in. And who controls it and who controls access to it, right? I mean, it is one of the most holy, if you want to use that word, sites. It's supercharged. This is the first piece of land that we owned in the promised land. We bought it. There's no contest about that. It's written right here in this document. It is ours, right? The rest of it you want to say we took. We conquered, whatever. You can't say that about the cave of Machpelah. Abraham paid good silver for it. Uncontestable. 
Um, and so it's, it's just super. And then our ancestors are buried there. So it is an incredibly supercharged symbol. Um, and in the ancient Near East, just like today, symbols are everything. And in the, and, and in the, in the Middle East today, symbols remain in some ways as strong, if not stronger than anything. Like I used to say to Renee, I I would ask her, like, why? Why is there so much fighting over this one stupid, like, I just, and she said, you are asking such a Western question. (laughs) Like, the stupidness was my question, right? Because she's like, this is the Middle East, honey. She said, "The, the symbolic is the real. The symbol is what's real. And people will shed blood, their own included, to die for it. Because it is what is most real. That is a different, to some extent, not, not, not completely, but it's a different mindset, right? And so the superchargedness of Hebron goes back a, a really, really long time. And it remains an incredibly, right, mm-hmm. tense and difficult and awful situation. So today we know exactly where <laughs> No. But you can visit. Tradition right. says. Visit yes. Where was Jesus crucified? Right there. <laughs> They'll show you. Right there. According to tradition. <laughs> Nobody knows any of this. But we know Hebron. We know biblical Hebron. So, right? There was a cave yeah, yeah. Like, so, you know, so, right. But what actual place is an actual, but, but according to tradition? The place you visit today. Right. Well, I can also go visit where David is buried today. I can go visit the very place Jesus' body laid after he was taken down from the cross and people are on their knees kissing that slab because the symbolic is the real. Where was Jesus? Outside the city. (laughs) But according to tradition, this is the spot. So yes, we can go there because tradition tells us this is the spot. Right, but that's what's that's what's real. That's what's powerful, right, for people. This might be a stupid question. No such thing. Is Hebron accessible now? Well, it's you know. At your own risk. At your own risk, behind a bunch of barbed wire and guns, you know. So it's and some people say, why why are we making such a big deal about protecting Jewish access to this, you know, at, at such great expense? And it's like because. I guess I was just trying to lift up for you. This is why. This is why. Because it's not because it's ours. It's all ours. It's this. Right? It's the first. It's Abraham and Sarah are there. And and Rivka and Yitzchak, they're all there. Right? So... So yes, we have access, but it's it's incredibly complicated and very tense and very awful. It seems it's one thing to buy a piece of land and entirely another to buy a piece of land where you're going to put a grave with 
open and really mark it as yours. This is where your people will be buried. Is that true? Sure. It's pa- I mean, it's powerful it's still. It's heavier. Mm-hmm. It's still heavy for us, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is where my mother's buried. This is where my grandparents are buried. This is... This is true. It, you know, it doesn't have maybe as much power for us because we don't live locally often to where that's happening but for sure it's loaded and and even everyone understands oh my gosh if we're going to do an archaeological excavation and it turns out it's burial land stop the tractors Uh, there's still like this this very serious power around where remains of human beings right are same is true of American Indian absolutely absolutely that you don't disrupt burial grounds is kind of a it's this is what we call in in cultural anthropology we call terrestrial human culture right there are some features that every single culture shares that has ever been known um, and we call that THC terrestrial human culture and one of them is this is this uh, I can't find the right word one of it is the power of death mm. and and what symbolizes that for us and and it's it's loaded always in every culture it's loaded differently in different cultures right but there's 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 universal understanding that death is a big deal to human beings what's the deal with bones <laughs> what's the deal with what bones it's not that they're important it's that that's what's left um, the the body becomes earth again right. but the bones are what's left and so they're collected and treated with respect because you don't just toss them around and in another culture that might be very respectful I don't mean to say it's disrespectful but like you know for for our, our ancient ancestors you, you didn't just throw them around right you you collected them carefully and you put them in a respectful lovely box for that purpose and you buried that in the ground in the Hawaiian culture bones are very important same thing I mean they're what's they're what's left yeah today Amy wouldn't the certitude of the location be sort of validated by Makhbala in its importance to Islam today mm-hmm. and the fact this exact site they have in a mosque on the burial site no you don't think it would make any difference? No. Muslim culture and when mosques would have been built compared to the uh, to the Bronze Age? No. No, just the idea of the fact that Abraham, who is the patriarch of Islam as well, the Muslims in 600 or 700, whenever they came in, would have said, yeah, that, that's really the site. That, that's it. You know? How would they know? That's what I'm saying. Well, According to tradition, that's the site. But it's closer. Right? It would have been two, you know, thousand BCE. Like they, they, there's not a continuous map that has on it. This is the cave, right? There's no such thing. There may not even have been such a thing. This may not have. I shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> this may not have happened. What? <laughs> so I mean. I want to read So according to tradition. All right. So now I want to go back. We, we've dealt with, I think we've dealt with Machpelah. V'yiyu chaye sarah me'a shana ve'esrim shana ve'sheva shanim shnei chaye sarah. This is a bizarre way to say what the Torah is trying to say. 
So the rabbis were like, okay, can't just be that it's written in a weird way. Has to be meaningful. Sarah's lifetime, Chaye Sarah, the lives of Sarah, because Chaim is a plural noun, like sailed the seas. It is a singular. It is a plural singular. Yeah. So Chaim is the same way. So it's Chaye, plural, Sarah, the life, the life of Sarah, Meashana, a hundred years, Beesrim Shana, and twenty years, Vesheva Shanim, and seven years. That is a tangled way to say she lived to be 127. <laughs> Even for Torah. It just, it, right? Like, why break it down into these pieces? And then, after Sheva Shanim and seven years, Shnei Chaye Sarah were the years of the life of Sarah. Like, that is just a elaborate kind of way to say something that the rabbis see as an engraved invitation to Midrash. All right? So that at a hundred Shana, Mea Shana, it was as if she were 20. And, and remained as beautiful, this is a little creepy, as a seven-year-old girl. <laughs> so this is one of the Midrashim. That that's why it's broken down this way. Um, <laughs> this, the years of the life of Sarah being tacked on at the end again uh, one of the Midrashic traditions is that it means they, they put that phrase on again at the end of the sentence to say every year of her life was equally good and equally blessed now I have to believe there was some stuff that went down <laughs> that, that was not equally fantastic to other things that went down, right, in Sarah's lifetime. Um, yeah, so, but what we just had was the Akedah. We just had the Akedah. That's why I had you turn to it first. We have the Akedah, and the very next thing we hear is what? Sarah dies. For the rabbis, this connects. It directly connects. And there are many midrashim about how it connects. I did not anticipate so many of you choosing to come here this morning, which is a wonderful thing. So I think there's 35 copies. We're about 40-something. There are many midrashim, and in all of them, the direct connection is between the Akedah and Sarah dying that the Akedah is the cause of Sarah's death. That the, when we say that the Akedah is a victimless story, like nobody, nobody got hurt, the whole point of the story is nobody got hurt, not according to our tradition. If you know the tradition deeply, which most people don't, which most people don't, if you know the tradition deeply, you know there's a victim of the Akedah. And the victim is Sarah. I find it fascinating that the rabbis go there. I find that really interesting. And in a story that's supposed to be, as it's explained by the rabbis and defended by the rabbis, it's supposed to be a story about not killing, 
What you don't do, right? The neighbors killed their kids and sacrificed their kids to their gods. Um, so we don't do that. That's why this story exists. It's why it's here. It's a polemic against child sacrifice. In a tradition that defends this story that way, it's fascinating to me that the rabbis go to, but it killed Sarah. Uh, because. What? How old was she when she gave birth to Isaac? Old. Eight years old. And then he was, then we don't know how old he was. He was 12, maybe, or whatever. Thirty-five, I think. Thirty. One hundred and twenty-seven years makes sense, then. Yeah. It killed her because she was attached to her child, and she was the one who experienced what that would mean. So that was a trauma. Hundred percent. It's interesting to me that the rabbis get it. Write that. That they get it, that they write it, because there's it, nowhere does it say she knows what happened. Nowhere, we have no reason to believe she knows anything about what happened on that mountain. But the rabbis have. But the wives. rabbis have wives. <laughs> the rabbis have wives. Sarah's exactly right. The rabbis writing these midrashim have wives who are mothers, and there is no way they would have gotten out of the house with her only son that she had late in life and had longed for all her life. There is no way they got out of the tent without her knowing because they have wives, right? Okay, so so it's fascinating that they write these midrashim. It's just fascinating to me. In a polemic against, you know, death and killing on that altar, it is fascinating to me that they choose to go here and say... But there, there was a death associated with, with the Akedah. All right, let's look at the first. This is from, uh, this is from Aviva Zornberg's book. You know she's one of my favorites. Um, Aviva Zornberg, uh, this is from her book, uh, The Beginning of Desire. Her book on Breshit, her book on Genesis. So she looks at, here. let's look at Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. It's one of the most famous midrashim about this incident. Um, Sarah Moskowitz, will you read it please? That little paragraph in the middle? When Abraham? Uh huh. When Abraham came from Mount Moriah, Samuel, Satan, was furious that he had failed to realize his lust to abort Abraham's sacrifice. What did he do? He went off and told Sarah, Ah, Sarah. Have you not heard what's been happening in the world? She replied, no. He said, your old husband has taken the boy Isaac and sacrificed him as a burnt offering while the boy cried and wailed in his helplessness for he could not be saved. Immediately, she began to cry and wail. She cried three sobs, corresponding to the three tekiah notes of the shofar. And she wailed yelalot three times, corresponding to the yavava staccato notes of the shofar. Then she gave up the ghost and died. Abraham came and found her dead, as it is said. 
and Abraham came, literal translation, to mourn for Sarah and to bewail her. All right. This is pretty vivid. Yeah. Pretty vivid. That Satan, here called Samael, they are the same. Um, Satan has lots of different names. So Satan is furious because Abraham's going to pass the test. Right? Samael, Satan was hoping Abraham would say, heck to the no. I'm not sacrificing my child. Are you kidding me? Like, we're done. But he doesn't. He passes the test. And so Satan is furious that he couldn't, right, implicate uh, Abraham, and so goes to Sarah and says to Sarah, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> you know what's going on today? No? Let me tell you. All right, CNN. Here's live coverage. Your old, crazy husband, right? So your doddering, foolish, crazy old man took your son and sacrificed him as a burnt offering while the boy cried and wailed for he could not be saved. Caught and trapped in his own helplessness, the boy cries and your old man killed him. So she begins to wail. Note what the rabbis do with this. Three sobs according to the tikiah notes of the shofar. This is Sarah's wail. This is Sarah's cry. Yivava are the staccato notes related to this idea of yelalot, women who who uulate. When you mourn, you pay people to come uulate. That noise is the noise of the shofar. The mourning wails in the in the rabbi's world, they would have recognized that sound as wailing, mourning. And that becomes so look what the rabbis do with that. If that's the sound of the shofar, Sarah's wailing at the loss of her son, at the helplessness of her son the suffering of her son, a mother's wailing about that becomes redemptive for the people Israel at the high holidays. Wow. I got chill. Why did Sarah believe this? Why not? Where is Abraham? Where is Isaac? They have a relationship with you. What kind of relationship does she have? Where are the servant lads? Oh my God. Where is everybody? No one told me where they were going. They're supposed to be... Isaac's supposed to be having breakfast. He's supposed to be in, in, in math right now. What are you telling me? He's not in school? She, she has no reason not to believe right? this magical being telling her, I'll tell you what's happening right now. That husband that wanted to move you here from the middle of nowhere, that same voice that told him, Lech Lecha, go to a place that I'll show you. That voice talked to him again. And this time, so you might say, what's going on in the relationship between Sarah and Avraham? That she's like, I'm going to kill him. Right? (laughs) Like, you know, like, that she she would, that she would believe him. 
hope you would give them a, at least a hearing. <laughs> right? A good question for me is, what was the relationship between Sarah and God uh, in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, how could you do this to me? Yeah. T- Torah seems very little interested. Mm-hmm. Right? It, and if we go back to a reading that Sarai was originally a priestess, you know, and all of that, it makes some sense that she's completely disempowered in terms of her relationship to the God in these stories. But, but right, it's a... It, what is her relationship from the beginning, right? To like, wait, wait, you talk to whom? <laughs> Why are we going away? Why are we leaving everything we know? Because some invisible voice told you that's what we're supposed to do? Okay, right? Like, I mean, so like, we don't have any of those conversations. None of them. And we never have Abraham conferring with her about any of it, right? And, and she, remember she's had a visitation from an angel. I mean, you know, there's been this whole, she's going to have a baby in a year, it knows she laughed, blah, 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 you know, so that Sarah's got some kind of access to the idea that there's something here. Maybe that's what convinces her that... What, what woman does God have a relationship with? Well, we know Rivka goes immediately to ask about what's going on in her belly, so Rivka seems to have some direct access Right, because God says to her, "There are two nations in your belly," so Rivka, for sure. But God certainly doesn't seem to have the equal relationship with women. As of course not. These stories, right? These stories are patriarchal. Yeah. These stories are coming to displace the female right. relationship to the feminine divine and to the male divine. Like th- these stories have an agenda, and it is to disempower women vis-a-vis the God, right. for sure. Well, I don't know. There, there's discussion about why does Rachel take the trafim? She takes the trafim because she is still practicing the uh, idols. She takes the idols from her father's house and steals them. Um, and th- there's some, there's a lot of discussion that says she's still practicing. And the rule was among priestesses is it went to the youngest daughter. The role of priestess and of you know and of of doing the rituals for the for the clan would have gone to the youngest daughter. Hence, Rachel felt like they were hers by right, so she took them. That they belonged to her, so she she took them. All right. Um, so in this case, so so Sarah dies um, of a broken heart. All right. So let's look at the um, and so I want you to read this when you get home because it's just it's so beautiful. Um, what Zornberg writes, the more obvious notion that the shofar, the ram's horn, evokes the substitution of the ram for Isaac at the moment of actual sacrifice, thus takes on a more tragic and paradoxical cast. Isaac is saved, and the shofar announces the possibility of redemption of symbolic substitutions, but Sarah is not saved. And in the world of her mind, Isaac is not saved. And yet the cries of her and his despair are retained in liturgy and ritual, quote, as an atonement for her descendants. A very powerful rendering of the sound of shofar that it becomes, right, as an atonement. God, hear hear the cries of the shofar. And don't, don't remember Isaac. Remember Sarah and her suffering, right? And forgive us. 
We have no merit, but she does, right? It, exactly. All right, so the, let's look at the next one. The second Midrashic source for Rashi's comments is from the Tanchuma. So here's another version. Just as Avraham stretched out his hand to take the knife, a heavenly voice came forth and said to him, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. If it were not for that, he would already have been slaughtered. At that time, at that moment, Satan went to Sarah and met her in the guise of Isaac. So now, Satan takes on the appearance of Isaac. When she saw him, she said, my son, what has your father done to you? He answered, my father took me and led me uphill and down dale till he took me up to the top of one mountain, built an altar and laid it out and arranged the wood and bound me on top of the altar and took the knife to slaughter me. If it had not been that God told him, don't stretch out your hand against the boy, I should have already been slaughtered. Satan did not manage to finish the story when Sarah's soul flew away. <laughs> so now Satan comes as Isaac, so he survived. So what kills her here? To Ed's point, what kills her here? That Abraham would have done it. That had God not stopped her husband, her husband would have slaughtered their child. Yeah. But also, just even the image of her son in such peril, forget Abraham, just the, the possibility that it could have happened for so long. That it would have happened. Mm-hmm. It would have happened right. had God not stopped it. So just to know that your husband was capable of doing that. The, and that your kid came that close. You know, that, that, that it almost, it almost happened. And that, he doesn't even get to the end. And, and obviously Isaac survived if she believes that's Isaac, uh, right? But, but just the thought of it, it, it she, she doesn't make it to the end of the story. She dies before the end. Sheldon? Isn't there some that says that uh, Abraham uh, loved uh, his first son more? No. no. Because why? You tell me why those midrashim did not get written. Why? Well, because it's uh, well, because our our uh, tradition comes down to right. We wouldn't we wouldn't go there. So no, those midrashim do not exist, right? Because it's not in their interest at all. Not only is it not in their interest, they have a bit of a problem that Avraham was willing to banish Ishmael. They have a problem. with. They have a little bit of a PR problem with Avraham Avinu, right? Abraham, our beloved father. Um, so they have to actually figure out ways to demonize Ishmael. So Midrashim that are written are written to demonize Ishmael and therefore the descendants of Ishmael who are our enemies. Hmm? All right. They buy Joseph. They don't save Joseph. They buy him. So who you, who are you saying saves Yosef? No, they don't save him. No, his brothers decide to make some money. The Ishmaelites are passing by, and they're like, yo, yo, we have a deal for you. He reads. He writes. Right? He can tap dance. 
He's great. And then you get him at a great price. It's the brothers who decide to sell him into slavery. All right. Um, all right, 126. We'll close with this one. Abraham did not rejoice in my world, and you seek to rejoice? He had a son at the age of 100, and in the end, God said to him, take your son. So Abraham took Isaac, his son, and led him uphill and down dale and up to the top of one mountain, and he built an altar and arranged the wood and took the knife to slaughter him. And were it not that the angel called out from heaven, he would already have been slaughtered. Know that it is so. For Isaac then returned to his mother. So now it is Isaac who's returning to his mother. Where have you been, my son? He answered, my father led me uphill and down dale. She said, woe upon the son of the drunken woman. Were it not for the angel, you would, you would already be slaughtered? He said, yes. At that, she screamed six times, corresponding to the six Tekiah notes. She had not finished doing this when she died. As it is written, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to bewail her. In both of these, um, Zornberg focuses on the, on the, were it not for that, you would have already been slaughtered. And she goes immediately to philosophical, existential, Explorations, which I hope you'll read, about the human condition is exactly this. We're gonna die. So we're living in the, but for that, you'd be gone. We're all living in that because it's coming. Is that where the, but for the grace of God, go So, because th- that means God has graced me with a different reality than that person's, right? This is talking about, where Zorenberg goes is talking about this, this pain is the pain of being human. That she goes into this whole existential thing about once you're born, it's as if you had never been born because you know you're gonna die, and so living in that interim space between what is, what is it to be aware that one exists and that one is not going to exist and living in that that tiny little space between the knife and the call of the angel and that that's where we all live. And that when Sarah realizes the fullness of the agony of that, that's what kills her. Right? That we all, we all know on some level and run from it all the time in many ways. Am I right? We run in many ways from facing and confronting our own horror at our own certain death. There's only one way out of this. And we really can't hold for very long, most of us, the real sense of the pain, the agony of that, and the agony that it's going to happen to everybody we love. The unbearable, she calls, she calls it, you know, the unbearable lightness of being. That it's just when we really get how light our existence is, it is pretty much unbearable. So but once one comes directly into an understanding at all of 
the unbearable lightness of being, one treasures things differently than when one takes it all for granted. Um, So this Shabbat, may we uh, not take one moment, uh, one miracle of this gloriousness uh, for granted, and uh, may we take some time to celebrate it in whatever ways works best for us. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.